All right, looks like we're at time. Yeah. All right, so this week we're going to be picking up where we left off uh, here at chapter 10, verse 46 of Jesus healing blind Bartimaeus. If you recall, last week we talked about Jesus foretelling of his death and resurrection a third time, disciples still not fully getting it, and then the request of James and John, who were bold enough to ask if they could sit at Christ's right hand and his left, and then all the other disciples being mad that they didn't ask first. But with all that, we're going to get into blind Bartimaeus. We'll see how far we get this week. May get into triumphal entry, the cursing of the fig tree, and possibly the temple, depending on how talkative we all are. So with that, we'll begin with the invocation of the Lord's Prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. And so, like I had said, we'll pick up in Mark 10, verse 46. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And so Jericho, again, if you'll recall that big map that we had talked about of the three passion predictions, moving closer and closer to Jerusalem. Here he is, right near Jerusalem, leading into the next section, the triumphal entry here. But so they're right in this area, and then this man, blind Bartimaeus as we know him, comes up to Jesus, and he's sitting along the roadside here. <clears throat> and so Bartimaeus, the name for that, Bar is Aramaic for son, and so then Timaeus, son of Timaeus. Likewise with Barjona or Benjamin for Hebrew, you know, son of that. So that's where his name comes from there. So then he was sitting along the roadside. And so we'll see this as the passage progresses, but he's sitting alongside or beside the road. And as we'll see later on, then he follows Jesus at the end and goes on the road with him. And so we see this transition throughout of him coming to faith, being called to faith, and then following Christ on the way, which we see in Acts 9, 1-2. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And so early Christianity being called the way, that same word that's used here for the road here. And so it could be intentional, Mark bringing this up, of distinguishing him, you know, kind of sitting alongside the road, helpless, being blind, and then being brought to sight, being called to faith, and then following Christ then on the road there. So a little interesting connection that some of the commentators had brought about. But again, just as you're reading through it, you would never necessarily pick that up. So interesting little tidbit there. 
So he was sitting along the roadside, and then verse 47. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And so if he, again, he's blind here, but he hears that Jesus is coming. So likely he heard of you know, Jesus' miracles in the past or any of that. And so he hears that this Jesus is coming. And so he calls out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So again, bringing back the image of the son of David, the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah coming. So he calls out for mercy, not for healing, not that his sight would be restored, which later he'll ask for that in verse is it 51, after Jesus probes him further, what do you want me to do for you? Then he says, restore my sight. But here at the beginning, it's have mercy on me. Likewise, whenever we go to the divine service, in divine service two that we use, you know, we start out with the Kyrie, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. <laughs> Must have said something that Siri liked. <laughs> yeah. Always is. Yeah, so we start, you know, the divine service of asking for that mercy as well. And then what does the Lord do? He has mercy. He showers us with his gifts. Likewise, Jesus does with the blind beggar here. And then, again, interesting note with the hymnals. Again, we're kind of using the bulletins more now. But in the hymnals, there's the scriptural citations all along. And so this is a specific verse that's cited in our divine service setting too, in the Kyrie. And so we're bringing all this stuff from Scripture into our liturgy. And that's what we use week in and week out. It's not something that we create or change as we wish, but we draw it from Scripture of what the Word of God is for us. We respond with that there. So he cries out to have mercy on him. Then in verse 49, and Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying, take heart, get up, he is calling you. Oh wait, we skipped a verse. Verse 48, and many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And so likewise, what we saw a few passages ago, was it two weeks now, with the little children coming to Jesus. The disciples are rebuking them of, you know, Jesus, he, he's too busy for those little children. They're of little significance for, you know, the great Messiah coming to kick out the Romans and everything. And here, likewise, a blind man coming to Jesus. And then those in the crowd, possibly even the disciples as well, just as many of them, which the disciples were included in that. They're rebuking the man. And so again, we see this comparison of the little children who to them belongs the kingdom of heaven. Likewise, with this blind man, even though outwardly it's insignificant person to all the worldly standards, you know, he's just a beggar. What does he have to offer to the world? What does a child have to offer? But then Christ says, let the little children come to me, call him to me that he may bring physical healing and spiritual renewal to him. And so the crowds are rebuking him. He's too busy for that. And then the man cries out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. 
you just picture that, you know, they're trying to hold him back and say, shh, 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 stay, you know, stay over here. He's just crying out all the more, all the more, have mercy on me. And that we would be so bold in our asking of God for his mercy upon us. Even in the midst of the world, you know, telling us to be quiet, don't go and worship, you know, got all this stuff going on in the world, you know, you can't gather together of all the more crying out, have mercy on me and calling for God to give us his gifts here. The crowd's rebuking. He cries out all the more to have mercy. And then Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. How quickly their tone kind of changed, first from rebuking him to now, hey, get up, you know, take heart. Jesus is calling you here. Just at the, at the quick shift that happens here. But then we also get this language of calling. And likewise, you know, we'll see with the changing of the blind man and restoring his sight here, being called by the gospel, the Holy Spirit working in us, that conversion here. So he's as, telling them to call him. And blind man saying to him, uh, take heart, get up, he is calling you. Then in verse 50, and throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And so some of the commentators, or is it in the, it's actually in the study notes here, in verse 50, the cloak, it says, folded on a lap to receive alms. He tossed away the cloak in order to get up, not knowing if later he would be able to find the alms in his source of warmth. The word for spraying shows urgent excitement. So you have his, little, his cloak sitting kind of on his lap, receiving the alms. All of the money that he received from begging is sitting there, and then him tossing that all aside, not knowing, you know, in the midst of the crowd all gathering here, are you going to be able to find that? Are you going to be able to find all the little shekels laying about? He could care less, you know. He goes up in excitement, throws his cloak, throws his source of warmth, you know, he's not going to have a closet full of clothes to come back to. You're going to have that and that alone. But he throws that, and he sprang up and came to Jesus. And then verse 51, And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. So here, again, at first, he doesn't ask for healing or any of that, simply to have mercy. But then Jesus probes further, you know, what do you want me to do for you? It would be nice if you, if you could restore my sight. And so whether or not his first intention back in the first part of the passage was to have his sight restored, we don't know, but it doesn't seem that way. It seems that he just is looking for mercy in whatever form or shape that may take of the Lord giving it to him. So he asked to recover, for his sight to be recovered. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. The worst translation in the ESV of Go your fa- way, your faith has made you well. The word used there is sozo, to save. So your faith has saved you. Not made you well, not healed you. That's a different word used. The Greek, you could have used that for it has healed you, but it has saved you. 
or your faith has saved you. Conversion, faith, salvation there. And so we see this word used throughout Scripture for being used for saving in Matthew 1 of you know, the foretelling of the birth of Jesus. She will give birth to a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Likewise, in Mark 10, 26, if you'll recall, it was the rich young man. And so Jesus saying, you know, just believe and, you know, go sell all your things and do all that. And then the disciples are astonished of, and who can be saved if it's so difficult for a rich man to get into heaven? So who can be saved then? And so even just within a few verses here, it's translated as saved and then made you well. Same kind of look. That's the face I was making. Yeah. So again, just that salvation language that's being purposely used here. And so to translate it as made you well is just doing a, a disservice to what is going on. Because there, there's two things going on here. First, there is that physical healing. Christ did let him recover his sight. He did heal him. But what's the greater miracle going on here? It's not his sight. He's going to get old. He's going to lose his sight. You know, he's going to need glasses and all this stuff. Lazarus, though he was raised from the dead, he's going to die again. You know, we have these physical miracles, and as great as they are, that's awesome. But the greater thing going on here is his faith has saved him. Then he immediately recovered his sight and followed him on the way, on the road, on the way to salvation, when previously he was beside the road just alongside it, not yet on it. But then at Christ's call, he's now on the way, on that narrow path that leads to salvation here. Any thoughts? Yep, Barry. I'm looking at verse 51 and wondering if you could comment some on that. Jesus says, what do you want me to do? Um, I think that we as Christians now, Jesus is basically saying that to us and don't pray for what we need. Mm-hmm. Then I said, God's too busy doing other things. I don't know. It's in my own mind. Yeah, I just, he, he wants to hear our, our come boldly. Is that, I mean, comment on that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Living the Christian life, is Jesus saying that to us every day? Yeah, I mean, we'll get to this probably, probably won't be until next week. Later on in chapter 11, the le- lesson from the withered fig tree and we'll talk some about prayer of, in verse 24. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. So we'll spend some time talking about prayer and all that there. But yeah, I mean, that is a very good point of you know, how we're not bold in our prayer to really ask and trust that God does hear our prayers and does grant those prayers according to his good and gracious will. And so he does want us to come to him 
you know, call upon me in the day of trouble. How often do we say, well, he's too busy doing all this other stuff, like you said. He's too, he's too important to do those things. He has, no, he has no time for little old me sitting here. But it's quite the opposite of what he does want. He does want you to come to him. And he does promise to hear those prayers. So, yeah, absolutely. Am I correct in thinking that Calvinists did part of this translation? I don't Do you know, know on what the history the of the ESV. If the ESV came out of Calvinist tradition, or where its origins, I'm not, I'm not I, sure. I would be interested in seeing the list of the people who worked on this. Mm-hmm. You know. It's giving all power to God the Son as equal to God the Father in heaven, and it's not all predestination and all that. It would be direct contact with God the Son. I mean, that is the value of looking at different translations that you do have. And again, don't get me wrong, even though this is a little bit of a blunder in the translation, there's still very, very faithful translations out there it's important to look at the different translations because at the end of the day, when you're translating something, it's going to be, you've got to try and take something from one language and translate it into a new one. Things aren't necessarily going to carry over the same, the idioms and all that. And so you're going to have a bunch of decisions of, well, this one word can mean three different things in the English language. Which one am I going to choose there? And so that's the value of looking at different translations as well. Of Some of them are going to have kind of those different... I don't know if other translations have that as saved you or not, but it could be one of those times where you're like, that doesn't quite fit to what's going on here. As so you look at those other translations and see, ah, there's some you know, decisions that they made, and they made this one instead of... Any other thoughts? No? Okay. So now we'll get into the triumphal entry in chapter 11. Verse 1, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. So before we get too far into this, it would be useful for us to look back at some Old Testament prophecies and see what is influencing all this. So if you will, turn to Zechariah... 9 verse 9. So this is the coming king of Zion. 
So then in verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So we get some of that repetition. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughters of Jerusalem. We see that a lot in the Proverbs of where they're kind of saying the same thing, but in a slightly different way. And so, again, we have this prophecy of the coming king will come, you know, not on a horse and chariot and all that, but rather on a donkey. So this is what leads us into back in Mark 11, of Jesus telling the disciples, of, you know, go into this village in front of you, and you will find an, a colt's tide on which no one has ever sat. And so some of the commentators, they brought up two different possibilities of something to gain from or why it's important that no one has ever sat on it. And first could be it being used for royal purposes. And so we see this in 1 Samuel of you know, them having to transport the ark back to Israel. And the Lord says, Now then take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke. And yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And so these unused animals being used for royal purposes. You know, not having previously had a yoke on it, not having been sat upon previously. And so that setting aside of the animals for a royal purpose. But then another possibility, I think Veltz may have made this point, is that it shows how untamed the animal is. You know, with a horse, if you haven't broken in the horse, you're in for a wild ride until you get him broken into or broken in. And so likewise with this colt, you know, he's untrained. He doesn't know how to walk around the road without kind of trying to buck you off and all that. And so he makes the argument that with Christ calming the storm in a mark, it's a theme that Mark is using of Jesus bringing creation under his control. So the calming of the storm, the taming of the colt upon him. Whether or not that's a little too much to draw out of a colt which no one has ever sat on, possibly. But an interesting, interesting thought nonetheless. Jesus says to them, you know, untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And we'll send it back here immediately. So here we have the Lord self-designating himself as the Lord, the curios language here. So it's used a couple different times throughout, throughout the Gospels, but he doesn't use that too often of self-designating him as the Lord here. But then if you know, anyone comes and asks you, you know, why in the world are you untying my cult over here? You know, it's it's our cult. They say, oh, the Lord has need of it, and he'll bring it back later. Oh, I don't think nowadays we'd be so trusting of people if they say they're going to bring it back later on, especially out here in California. We have need of your car. We'll bring it back later, though. We, we promise. Yeah, yeah, right. But another important thing is that this isn't even the Lord's cult that he's riding in on. It's a borrowed one. He's going to bring it back later on. He's just momentarily using it. So it's not his own chariot, his own 
donkey even. It's just a borrowed colt. And so the humility of him riding in, not on anything of his own wealth or power, but on someone else's colt. And that's it. So in verse 4, And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? Natural question they would have, probably. Verse 6, And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Things happened just as the Lord had you know, said, of, if this happens, then do this. They followed his directions, and lo and behold, the people were fine with it. Then in verse 8, Many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming King of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So we have this talk about the garments or the cloaks, as it's translated here. Do it. I was making sure you weren't trying to get my attention. I was just blabbling on. (laughs) Yeah, we're good. So we have this language of the cloaks or the garments being used, and we'll cover this more fully whenever we get to Christ's crucifixion and the stripping off of his garments and the garment motif that's used and tied throughout Scripture. But, you know, we see this back in the Garden of Eden, them realizing their nakedness and the Lord having to clothe them and the animal skin, and that foreshadowing all the way through the coat of many colors, and all the way throughout Scripture, and then ultimately fulfilled in Revelation 7 of, who are these clothed in white robes, the ones having washed them in the blood of the Lamb. And so we'll talk much more fully about that whenever we get to the, the crucifixion account, and where it's more fitting to talk about us being clothed with Christ, but... Just hitting on that briefly of things to look forward to later on whenever we get, finally get to chapter 15 or so. So many had spread their cloaks on the road, and they're giving these shouts of Hosanna. So the, Greek, or the Hebrew there is literally, you know, save us now, or save us please, if you want to go with that translation. But so they're asking for this salvation for him to give. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest, in the language of David. We've talked about that a lot previously. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So this is just kind of an odd little ending to this passage. There's debate of whether it fits better with the cursing of the fig tree in twelve in verse 12 and following, or if it's just kind of an in-between transition. It's just kind of this odd little thing of, you know, Jesus entered the temple, you know, it was late at night, he took a look around at everything that was going on, and then went back to bed. And that's the end of that one. But I love this, because if this were a movie, I mean, this would be so dramatic mm-hmm. to me. I... Yeah, Mark has a wonderful way of that, of just... Kind of these unpredictable things of you wouldn't. 
if you were faking the Bible, as some claim, why would you come up with these passages of Jesus going in the temple, taking a look around, if it's not actually what happened there? You wouldn't, you wouldn't do that. So, Any questions on this passage? Thoughts, comments? Basically cry. Anyway. Quiet today. It's all the breakfast settling in, all the bacon that we had, the pancakes. All right, so now we'll move on to the cursing of the fig tree, which again is just one of those passages where it's like, how in the world did he do that? It's a bit, bit harsh, don't you think? I'm just walking by this fig tree and cursing it, and then it withers away, all that. But we'll see, we'll see what's going on here. So again, keep in mind that he's already gone to the temple. He's looked around, seen everything, kind of seen how things are set up, how things are carried out there. So now he's walking along the following day. So it's Monday of Holy Week here. Then in verse 12, on the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the, deci- in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. Now Barry, oh, yeah, Barry over there. This is your answer for previous weeks ago about the season of figs and how all the agriculture happened back there. So you get a little lesson in agriculture here in Mark as well. So multifaceted. You get some theology thrown in, a little bit of agriculture, how the figs grew, leafing season, all that. So... Who knew you could learn all this in, in the scriptures? So he's in the distance. He sees the fig tree and leaf. So he couldn't find anything on the fig tree. And so what's, what's the deal with this fig tree or these figs? What's the importance of it? Or is it just Mark including the fig tree because it was just a fig tree? So if there's any significance to it. But we see the fig tree being popped up all throughout Scripture, uh, shows up in 1 Kings 4, you can read it later on, of Solomon's wealth and the prosperity of the people. talks about the figs growing on the tree and all that. Likewise in Micah. But then it's also used for the judgment of Israel in Isaiah 34, 1-4. I'll read that briefly here. This is about the judgment on the nations. Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear, and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations, and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountain shall flow with their blood. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall, as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. So we get this language first of the stench of their corpses and blood flowing from the mountains. Like leaves falling from a fig tree. 
you'll see this carried on later later on as well. But then also it's used in Micah 7 about um, the lament over God's people of, Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. So there's this connection between the fig tree not bearing fruit, there not being any figs on the tree, and then also God's judgment upon the people. So we'll see that tied on here or tied together here in Mark. So back to Mark eleven here. <clears throat> and so he sees a fig tree, there's no figs on it. It wasn't the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Also, again, what an image of, you know, Jesus telling about his death and resurrection coming on. He just came in, rode on a donkey and all that. Of, why is he cursing this fig tree? He's just talking to a tree here. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Was the stress getting to him or what's going on here? But... This is true. But then it's also not the season for figs. So what's the, what's the purpose of that? Or, you know, if it's not the season, then why is, he, why is he cursing that? But we see this tied intimately with the people of Jerusalem. We saw this, was it last Sunday? Lose track of the Sundays here. But um, with the Jewish people. Of, you know, we have the temple. We're doing just fine. But in reality, there was no fruit there. And so then we'll see Jesus cleansing the temple here in a few moments. But they had all the appearances of being the holy people of God, but then once Christ did come and visit his people, they didn't know him. They rejected him, and there was no fruit there. It was just just a bunch of leaves, and that's it. Any thoughts on that? So is um, not being the season for figs, is that like saying it's not the season for you to accept me? You're not accepting me yet? Or Hmm. that, I'm not sure. Like for, it's not yeah. the season for the Jews because they're they were not accepting him as mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, we could possibly tie or have a parallel there. I mean, quite literally in the study notes, you know, it wasn't the season. The they should or they should have been present. The early unripe figs around that March or April time frame, even though the main harvest season hadn't yet arrived, of them being ripened. August, September, or something like that. And so, yeah, I think we could see kind of a parallel there of, you know, it wasn't, the season wasn't there. They weren't ripe for the harvest. They were, you know, they were rejecting, rejecting Christ. But it's more of a phony tree. Isn't that what the case is? It looks like a fig tree, but it really isn't because it has no figs. 
And if it was going to produce figs, it would have unripened figs. So mm-hmm. to me, it's just saying, what a bunch of phony tree you are. Yeah, they should have at least started showing some initial growth of the fruit, even if they were just little, little unripe figs at that point, but not fully grasping yet and not coming into full season as we saw, you know, with the disciples, not quite fully understanding and all that. But there should have been some, some evidence there. Could it be that even the, the temple, which is to come after, is the tree? Or is this tree that has the leaf but not the fruit? Can you ask that question again? Okay, he's talking about the temple, is that right? Yeah. He's asking about the temple. Mm-hmm. You know, hey, is this representing of the temple? Yeah, and we'll see that here in a few moments of why he kind of oddly puts that in between two different times of Jesus going to the temple and the parallel that he's drawing there. But, I mean, yes, and yes, it was literally a fig tree, Jesus going up to it. I know that's not what you're... Because the Shekinah glory apparently had left, and they knew that too, of the temple a long time ago. So there was no indication that God was present. They should have known that. And it comes on the heels of Jesus, you know, going in there, seeing what's going on in the temple, everything that's going on in him, then seeing the fig tree that it's bearing no fruit. You know, the Lord is returning to the temple and he, he sees there's no, no fruit there. I'm not being judgy. You're good. <laughs> it looked like you may have had a question, so I was wondering. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just thoughts. <laughs> Anything else on that one? I will say, if you look at Hebrews 13, 10, you're going to see this play out for those at the temple. You were connected to the temple. And those of the temple... You're going to see this play out in Hebrews 13, 10 those of the temple, and how they're not bearing fruit, which you brought out Mm -hmm. very well. But watch how this hits home in verse 10 of 13. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Mm -hmm. The Lord's Supper is not for them. They do not come to the altar of the Lord. The faith in the Lord is lacking. Mm-hmm. So what you said is true. <laughs> and that was an interesting connection that you made. I don't remember when it was back then, but talking about that passage of using that for a closed communion and how you don't normally hear people talking about that, that verse of they have no right to eat of it. That's true. Any other? <clears throat> and so now, uh, the, Jesus came to Jerusalem along with his disciples, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. So Chris, you're going to enjoy this this side of Jesus here, and coming in, flipping over tables, 
causing a ruckus here. But and so we had just seen this a couple weeks ago in I think it was Luke's account of the cleansing of the temple. And if you'll remember, the Old Testament passage was Jeremiah seven. And so we're going to look at that and then see how that then leads into his cleansing of the temple. If you will turn to Jeremiah seven, one to eleven. would have been a fascinating passage to preach on Sunday, but you're only, you're only able to really preach so long and over so much, so you got to pick and choose, but it's a good thing you guys are on the one-year lectionary, so you hear it again and again and again. So there's time to go back and hear it again. So Jeremiah 7, starting in verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the, gates, the gate of the Lord's house. Proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. So he's supposed to go into the temple, you know, stand in the gates here and say, Repent, amend your ways and your deeds. Go off, you know, get back on the right track here. Right worship of the Lord. And if you do, I will let you dwell in this place. You don't have a right to it. It's not their temple. But it's the Lord's. And his alone here. Continuing on in verse 4. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. So if you do amend your ways, do truly execute justice, don't oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, the widowed, or shed innocent blood, which we'll see what happens, what they do with Jesus, of the innocent blood they shed, and then what happens in 70 AD as well. So if you don't do these things, if you amend your ways, Then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever, that the Lord has given to them, and that is not their own right to have it, but is a gift from the Lord. Continuing on in verse 8, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely? Make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord." 
So they're asking, or the Lord is saying, you know, if you're going to go out, do all these things, then come back into the temple, say we're delivered, go back out, worship these false gods, do all this stuff. Well, that's not amending your ways. Likewise, if you're just kind of a, a pew warmer on Sunday, and that's the one day of the week where you're a Christian, and you go on saying, you know, well, I check that box, and I can now take off my Christian hat and go back out in the world and do all, anything I want to do, and then come back and say, I'm delivered. What is, what is that, really? So he's calling them, and this is a great warning that he is giving them. And then in verse 11, there is what Christ then quotes here back in Mark, in cleansing of the temple. So we're turning back to Mark 11. So he comes into the temple, he you know, turns over the tables, casts out the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, which again would have been you know, around the time of Passover, the Levitical code, all the pigeons, all the different animals that you have. And so they're kind of setting up these booths here in the temple, selling money or getting money, you know, being greedy, doing all that in the temple of the Lord and not you know, following his commands of it being the Lord's house. And instead, they're making it a place for profit, really, at the end of things. So he drives them out, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He's just kind of staying there, blocking everyone from you know, doing anything else like that. So he's standing guard here. And in verse 17, and he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? So again, my house, the house of the Lord, is my house. Again, in time, you know, all throughout the Gospels, Jesus equating me and the Father are one. This is another one that, you know, you won't necessarily hear quoted because it's a lot easier to quote, you know, I and the Father are one. But we know that this is the Lord's house. So now he is saying it is my house, putting him on, on the same par as that. So he's now a house is my house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So again, we, I'd preach on this, was it last Sunday? Again, confuse all the dates on things. But first he cleanses the temple. He drives all them out, drives out the money changers and all that. Purifies it, that it may then become a place for his teaching a place for him to then dwell. Again, preached about you know, baptism, of how likewise he cleanses us, purges us of all the money changers, of greed and all that in our hearts, that then we may become the temple of the Lord, where his word may dwell, and we may be taught, and hear the teachings of the Lord here. So all these things are happening, and the people are hanging on to his every words, as Luke's account says, 
So the chief priests and the scribes, you know, they've always you know, wanted to get rid of Jesus, this guy who's disrupting all these things. But now they saw the triumphal entry coming around, people shouting shouts of Hosanna, of save us. And now they're saying, well, he's really getting some traction here. You know, we've really got to take care of him. And very people are hanging on to his words. They're sitting there listening to his teachings. So now they, again, we're slowly building up of their fear of Jesus growing here, of his influence that is going on. They were seeking a way to destroy him, but they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. They fear that all these people are hanging on to his words, that everyone is listening to him. They fear him and his influence and what is going on. So now they're, again, we're slowly building up to their plot that they're going to carry out to get rid of Jesus. And when evening came, they went out of the city. They went out. That's it. So any thoughts on that one? I've never really recognized this before, where Christ says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Would you elaborate on all the nations? Because they did have an often divided on the sections and stuff. They still do have a wedding wall. Yeah. Yeah, all the different groups of the railing wall. With all the nations, I mean, you had the chosen people of God, the Jewish people, but then Christ coming for all the nations, where there's no neither Jew nor Greek, male, female, all those things, and so now it's his house of prayer. He's it's not about the physical temple anymore, because he has come as that new temple there. And so he is the embodiment of that. And so now is the house of prayer for all the nations, that all may come to faith, all may pray to him there. Does that answer your... Yeah, okay. I, I, you could become a Jew, right? Go, but then you go to the temple, right? So there's, he takes trips to Israel every other year. So there's one other thing about this, is that he gets particularly mad because there's a wall, there's this place, that any Gentile that passes this place will die. But remember, there still are those who were Gentiles, Goyim, those who were part of an, the nations that had become Christian, and Acts is going to, call them fear, God-fearers. They can still worship. Where were they setting up the exchange? It interfered with the nations, with all the Gentiles' worship. Sense? Okay, so, so what happened was that they have all these tables set up and the money exchange. And there's a place for the for the male Jews to to worship, the place the woman's court. Well, the 
Gentile courts, those who were out here, and that's where they were setting up the table. So it's not that they were setting up the tables in the narthex, like what we would call. They were setting it up in, in say, the back part of your pews where your visitors sat or the, the, the people with ch- children sat. They were interfering with the nation's prayers. They were interfering with the nation's... Does that make sense now? So that's why also that that plays out. Yeah, was that, that was the division of the leaders? There was a wall around, and they even found the stone that says, if one of these Gentiles pass it, they will put him to death. And so that, that does play out. And, and the courts were played out also. I mean, you have to look at the Old Testament, how that was played out too. Yep. It all plays out. You should go to Israel sometime. <laughs> Are you looking for people interested in coming? Again? <laughs> so any other thoughts there? Comments? No, nothing? That's a quiet bunch this morning. All right, so we'll hit briefly on the next passage. Don't want to get too far into it because don't have quite enough time to really do this passage justice. But in verse 20, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Again, just kind of setting this up for next week here. So the passing by the next morning, they see this fig tree that Jesus was talking to and cursing. Remember, they had overheard what was going on, Jesus talking to the tree. And they come back and Peter's like, wait, Lord. That was the same fig tree that you just cursed, and now it's withered away. What's that about? And so here comes Jesus expounding on what it was really about there. But again, it's just interesting how Mark divides this up. So we have Jesus cursing the fig tree, then goes in and cleanses the temple, and then we go back to the fig tree again. And so even though it's the following day and it's kind of set up chronologically, it's still kind of a unique insertion there of the fig tree, the cleansing of the temple, and a comparison there of the Jewish people of God, you know, not bearing that fruit and the curse that is going to come upon them there. Yeah, don't have time to really get into the prayer and having faith in God and moving mountains and thrown into the sea and all of that. I think less than five minutes won't really do that justice. But are there any other closing thoughts? If not, we'll end a few minutes early here. Going once, going twice? <laughs> it's just incentive to come back next week. Stay tuned. All right. The Lord be with you.